First Kings chapter 13. The whole theme of this book of First Kings is covenants and character. We're looking at God's promises that He's made, the covenants He's made with His people, with the kings, and His character, how He handles Himself. And then, of course, we look at the various kings, the various leaders, the various individuals in this section of Scripture and their character. So there's good lessons to learn and, obviously, lessons to learn from their failures. There'll be both of those today. But right now, we've been looking at King Jeroboam. He's the first king of the northern tribes, the king of Israel. Israel becomes the name for the northern kingdom. Judah becomes the name for the southern kingdom. And what we saw last week is that Jeroboam starts his reign by leading the northern tribes into idolatry. He has these two golden bulls made, and he says, these are your gods. This is Jehovah that brought you up out of Egypt. But if God, of course, that's not okay. And so he sends a prophet from Judah to discipline Jeroboam. And as a result, Jeroboam is publicly embarrassed and humbled. But instead of repenting, he tries to save face. Being highly regarded by his people was more important to him than being highly regarded by the Lord. And so despite the sequence of events that transpire after his rebuke, when we get to the end, we're going to take this little side story almost, where we go and and take this little journey with two prophets. But at the end of the story, the culmination is still about Jeroboam, is that after everything happens and he hears about everything that happens, Jeroboam still refuses to take God's word seriously, which starts the ball rolling toward his downfall. So chapter 13, verse 7. And the king said unto the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, if you will give me half your house, I will not go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, eat no bread nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that you came. So he went another way and returned by the way that he came, not by the way that he came to Bethel. This all comes up because of the exchange in the beginning of chapter 13 where Jeroboam tells his people, don't go down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to do it here a month later. And in the middle of that feast, while he's making an offering to these golden bull, the prophet comes up and he says, listen, altar, and he prophesies, God's going to judge you and men's bones, the bones of the priests are going to be burned on you in the future by a king of Judah named Josiah. And to prove it, he said, this is a sign that the Lord has spoken through me, is that this altar is going to be broken into pieces and the ashes that are on it will be poured out. When Jeroboam hears this guy saying these things, he says, arrest that man. But as his hand comes out and he points at him, arrest this man, his whole arm from the elbow down, fingers and everything becomes paralyzed. (laughs) Immediately he's like, pray to God, ask the Lord to forgive me, ask the Lord to heal me. And the man of God does, and he gets his arm back. So, so when we get to verse 7, the whole scenario is extremely awkward, but he changes his tone completely. And he invites the prophet to his home. The king says to him, the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself, which means to eat, you know, revive yourself. And clearly, this guy had looked like he'd come a long way and, and you know, hadn't really stopped to eat or anything. He says, come home, refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward or literally a gift, Uh, something that you give to somebody as a token of goodwill or friendship. Um, Frequently, when I'll be overseas on a mission trip or something, you know, someone there will give me something as a token saying, hey, we're so glad you came to help us out or to teach us or whatever it might be, and they might give me something as a memento. That's kind of what this word means. But there was also an odd practice in Israel at this time where you would give a financial donation to the prophets when they came to town to perform some spiritual service for the community. It likely came about because the people of Israel had stopped supporting the Levites financially, which God had commanded them to do. And rather than trust the Lord, the Levites responded to not being supported by just quitting. They just went went home to their fields and, and basically went out to work, just like everybody else. And they stopped teaching the people, stopped leading the people spiritually. So the prophets came about as kind of God's replacement for the Levites who'd been unfaithful. So the the people kind of had this warped idea that we're supposed to take care of those who serve the Lord, but it's, it's weird right now because what happened is, is then the prophets, some of them got corrupted, where they would only go where the money was best. 
They would go somewhere and be like, hey, I'm kind of freelancing as a prophet. If you guys pay me well, I'll be your, your town's prophet. And so like, they'd, there'd be like a family or a wealthier, powerful individual in a town, and they would sponsor him, and then he'd be the prophet for that town or whatever. Well, you know, and it's your job's on the line. Hey, what does the Lord have to say to us? You are blessed and highly favored. I mean, you know, because you want the money, they keep coming. So a lot of these guys have become corrupted. They could often be hired or bribed for favorable rulings from God. So Jeroboam, he's not had a change of heart here when he's like, hey, come on over. I mean, let's start over. No, that's not it at all. He uses lingo that he expects the prophet to understand. I know this started ugly, Mr. Prophet, but we can fix things here. I'll take care of you if you take care of me. That's kind of what the idea is here. Jeroboam's hope, again, is to save face in the eyes of the people, very similar to Saul. If getting the prophet to come out and soften his message costs him financially, well, he's fine with that. That's what you got to do. I have found that when the enemy is like his oppressive tactics don't work, he resorts to honeyed words in order to weasel his way until our counsels are thinking to get us to compromise. Jeroboam is kind of like a good representation of the enemy here. He first threatens the prophet's life by ordering his, his arrest, but when the Lord paralyzes his, his arm and his hands, you know, and his fingers, he pleads for mercy, and then after God mercifully heals him, instead of repent, he resorts to honey and compromise. I think it's vital to recognize that while God healed Jeroboam's hand, he didn't repair the altar. He didn't repair the altar. It's almost like he's saying, Jeroboam, I am a God of grace, but I'm also a God of truth, and I'm both at all times. I'm both at all times, with no compromise either way. So I want to show you mercy, and here's a token of that, that I healed you when you don't deserve it. But my standard never changes. This is wrong. Thankfully, this man of God, this prophet, is not a corrupt one. The man of God, verse 8, said unto the king, If you will give me half your house, I will not go in with you, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. You have to realize that sharing a meal with someone implied more than just politeness or friendship. It implied unity back then. In that culture today, it still implies unity. You don't just invite anyone over. God had forbidden his prophet, he says in verse 9, for so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that you came. God had charged and forbidden this prophet from displaying any sign of unity with the northern kingdom's idolatry. And so he says, and he tells me, he says, God spoke to me directly. He says, don't eat anything, don't drink anything, and when you go home, go back a different way. In other words, it wasn't just the message that God was going to use. God was going to use the prophet's behavior to also send a message to the king and to the king's people. And by doing so, he was telling the prophet, he said, listen, buddy, you're going to have to trust me to supernaturally sustain you through this. I don't want you stopping anywhere. Get in, give the message, and then get out. Trust me to take care of you. Go in. And when you leave, leave by a different way. People often go home by a different way than they arrived somewhere when they're trying to avoid danger. And I think that what God is telling the prophet, as he's revealing to us that God told him here, is this mission's dangerous, Mr. Prophet from Judah. And the danger doesn't stop when you finish giving your message. Go back by a different way. This will become important because the prophet's going to let his guard down on the way home. But at the start, he does good. Verse 10, so he went another way, and he did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. He trusted God when he went to give this heavy message to King Jeroboam, and King Jeroboam pointed at him to be arrested, that God would take care of him. And God did. God came through for him. But I, I still think it took a great amount of courage to walk away from the most powerful man in Israel. And so it's good that he did this. This is great. I need to have the courage to do what God clearly says in His Word. I need to be confident that God will sustain me even when obeying Him puts me at risk. And so he does this. He goes home by another way. The prophet takes God's Word seriously, even though this probably meant it would take longer to get home. Maybe even, in his eyes, a more dangerous route to get home. Well, I need to take God's Word seriously too, even when they, it appears that there might be easier routes for me to take. 
sometimes the enemy pops in front of you and, and it's clear it's the enemy. And then there's other times the enemy pops in front of you and he just, just looks like a, a less problematic path. Sometimes you look over and it's lined with pitchforks and demons and you're like, yeah, that's not the way I'm going. But then there are other times when the enemy pitches it to you as this is a great path to go down and yet it's dangerous. So we need to take God's Word seriously even when it appears that there might be easier routes to take. Now, since the focus is Jeroboam, we would kind of expect the story to end there, right? And then we'll go back to Jeroboam. But it doesn't. And that's because the danger that God warned this guy about came in a way that the prophet never expected. Look at verse 11. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, a different guy. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. And the words which he had spoken to the king, them they told also to their father. And their father, after he hears this, he says to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen the way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, saddle me the donkey. So they saddled in the donkey, and he rode thereon. And he went after the man of God, and he found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. Well, they said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you, nor go in with you. Neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me, by the word of the Lord, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again, or go by the way that you came. Well, he said unto him, the prophet from Bethel, I'm a prophet also as you are. And an angel spoke unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into his house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. This is where the story gets a little wonky. I will admit, okay, this chapter is a bit weird. What we need to remember is its bookends. The main focus here, the chapter is about Jeroboam's refusal to repent Even though we take this very odd side trip with these two prophets for the bulk of the chapter, the main point remains the same. God said something to Jeroboam, meant what he said, but not just Jeroboam, men of all kinds didn't take God's word seriously. That's the whole point. And then so that's why when we come back to Jeroboam at the end, and it says that God seeks to destroy the line of Jeroboam, we know why. Because God takes his word seriously. So, I'm going to have a lot of questions I'm going to throw out at you tonight because when I read this chapter, I'm just filled with questions. So if I don't ask some of the questions you're asking, my apologies, I recognize it's weird, I did my best, I've got a lot of questions and I'm going to throw them out there. When we look at this guy, he's not given any name, we just know he's an old prophet from Bethel. It does lead me to ask a ton of questions. For example, why did God have to call a prophet from Judah to rebuke the king if there's already one in Bethel? Why is the prophet living quietly in Bethel, which is the seat of idolatry? Why are his sons at the feast in Bethel when he's not? Clearly, a prophet would be an important figure to be at the feast. And why, all of a sudden, does he ask his sons, do you see which way he went? Yeah, we know which way he went. Get me the donkey. Why is he so concerned about why the other prophet went? Like I said, you might even have more questions. These are just a few than I have. My ultimate question is, what is the deal with this guy? Like, what is really going on here? We can't know all the details because just the Bible doesn't give us the rundown on this guy's background, his backstory, his life. Now, that his sons attend this clearly unbiblical feast, but he's not there, leads me to believe that he doesn't necessarily support what Jeroboam's doing. And yet, it's clear that he's not also not speaking out against it, because God has to get a prophet from Judah to go say something. So I don't know for sure, but when I look at this guy, I think he knows what's right. But it appears that at some point, by letting his sons go at the very least, he has compromised his position for whatever his own reasons might be, which does lead to an application because that cannot be us. We cannot let that be us. It is extremely normal to struggle with fear or laziness or leaning on our own understanding when we're in a hostile environment or we're in a situation where to speak up or to live a certain way would put us at risk. But we have to resist 
those things and obey the Lord. We can't be known as, well, I follow Jesus, but our lives say something completely different. That can't be the case with us. He hears about this guy, and he gets on the donkey and goes to find him, and (laughs) of all things, he finds the guy. And the reason he finds the guy is because it says in verse 14, he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree. Let's go back to the prophet from Judah now. You by your own mouth said that God told you, this is a dangerous mission, buddy. Go in, get the message, get out. What are you doing chilling under a tree in enemy territory? Like, what are you doing? I remember one time, I had, this is going to be a really weird story. It's a weird night, though. It's a weird passage of the Bible, so it's, it's, it fits. There was a, a burrito place. Uh, I told you it's going to get weird. There's <clears throat> a burrito place down off of, uh, I think it's OBT, I'm not sure, but it's, it's down that way. It might not be OBT, it might be somewhere near there. And it was nearby where my main office was when I worked for the school system, where the main office for the OCPS was. And they had really good burritos. And so it had been a semi-late night, and I went into this place, and it's a beat-up old place. It's, that's how you know the best burrito joints. Like the doors hanging off, if you see lots of flies, that's the place you want to go, right? <laughs> so I had gone here anytime we'd have a meeting down at the office, I would grab, maybe grab a dinner if it was late or lunch or whatever, and it was pretty late. And so I go inside, places no one's in there. And I get my food, and I'm like, oh, I need to go use the restroom. And I go in to use the restroom, and while I'm in there, all of a sudden, they've got those puffer things that like keep the, keep the nice smell in a restroom, whatever. It puffs, but it, it puffs so like this whole mist comes out and it starts filling the restroom. Now I'm in like a stall, and all of a sudden I can't breathe. And so I'm like, I'm like, and I th- I, now my brain just starts running with things. I'm like, there was no one else in the restaurant. I'm like, they're gonna like, I'm gonna pass out and they're gonna like harvest my kidneys. I didn't even buckle my belt. I didn't eat my burrito. I ran out of that place as quick as possible because I was absolutely convinced that I was gonna die. Now, why am I sharing that story? (laughs) I'm sharing that story because at that moment, I thought I was in enemy territory. I wasn't like, well, you know, we'll breathe in this stuff for a little longer, hack my brains out a little bit longer, and then I'll go eat my burrito. No, I was like, I think I'm going to die. I need to get out. Didn't care about the burrito. Didn't care I spent six bucks to get it. I want to live. It was enemy territory in my warped, frazzled mind at that moment. And I guess maybe I would say if you're struggling with sin in your life or maybe with spiritual growth, a possible culprit is that you might be treating enemy territory like it's home. You might be chilling under a tree when you're across enemy lines. I think addictive behaviors are probably some of the best examples of this. If your struggle is pornography, that person usually treats their TV or their phone or their computer like it's allied territory, like that's, that, like that's an ally for you. It's not. I mean, you might as well put horns and a pitchfork on your AT&T or Spectrum bill because it's enemy territory for you. If that's your battle, it's enemy territory. So it's not safe. There's no part of it that you can just chill with. You have to treat it like an enemy. It means you need to put walls up around your city. You have to do what you have to do to make sure that the enemy can't get you. If your struggle is food or alcohol, then like food, treating the grocery store, or alcohol, treating the grocery store, or the gas station, or a restaurant like it's neutral or allied territory is a mistake. Those places are danger zones. When you're there, you're across enemy lines, and so you can't afford to chill under a tree while you're in them. When we look at this guy from Judah, he's not an unbeliever. He's not even a bad believer. 
when we look at him, you would say about his life, you'd say, what do you think about this guy? Dude, he's got the courage of a lion. He loves God with all his heart and the fearless. He's just experienced and been a part of a, a massive victory where God miraculously used him. But whether he was exhausted or stressed out or just tired or hungry, or even just thought maybe he'd gotten far enough where he was safe, he let his guard down and it made him vulnerable. And so my warning to you tonight is if you're struggling in an area of your life or you're struggling to grow spiritually, I'm not telling you're not saved or that God can't use you. My warning is that you're exposing yourself to danger. And so if God is speaking to you about that right now, then I guess my exhortation would be, please don't ignore that. I don't know what you're going through, but you do. <laughs> and if the Lord's putting his finger on something right now, then don't ignore that tonight. Respond. Because the enemy is going to have an, a landing base of operations in your life until you do. This old prophet, when he finds me, asks me, he says, hey, are you the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. And then he said unto him, come home with me and eat bread. Those are the same exact words that Jeroboam used. This is where you cue the creepy music because this is the part of the movie when you realize that the nice guy is actually the villain. Come home with me and eat bread, Johnny. <laughs> Maybe that's a bit dramatic. But those words should have jolted the prophet into instant alertness. And instead, his reply has less conviction than it did with Jeroboam. Because his response isn't, I won't at first. He says that later. But his first response before he pauses is, I'm not allowed. Look at what he says here. Then he said to him, come home and eat bread with me. Verse 16, he said to him, I may not return with you, nor go in with you, colon, which means he pauses. I may not means I'm not able to. That response is far weaker than I won't. It's I'm not allowed or I can't. Again, the Bible doesn't give us insight into his thinking, but I've found that obligation, while it is a motivator, is a far lesser motivator than love. Far lesser. I don't know why there's this initial swap in his attitude, but I've seen it happen in my own life. I've seen it where in the past, I had areas of, of struggle in my life or sin in my life where the first time it happened, it was a battle. It was a battle. But like the next time and the next time and the next time, it got easier and easier to just fall right into it. You and I need to obey God even when our love is for Him is wavering, but we also need to deal with our wavering love. Because a sense of duty or a fear of consequences doesn't hold us forever. Love is the thing that never fails. Now, I think this guy realizes that because his second response isn't, I can't. After he pauses, he says, I will not. He says down here, after he pauses, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat no bread nor drink any water there, nor turn again to go by the way that you came. Now, that's good for him to say. He says, I'm just resting here for a moment, but I will not disobey the Lord. Good good man. And I believe he means it with all his heart. But the resting under the tree made him vulnerable. And so the other prophet throws something at him that he totally isn't prepared for. The other prophet says to him, I'm a prophet just like you. Look, here's my name tag. Graduated from Samuel's school of, of prophets. Look, Bethel, Israel, right here. We're the same, you and me. I'm not the enemy. And I've got a new message for you. He says, an angel spoke unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. Angel visitation is still used today as a way to increase one's authority. Someone will get on a stage and be like, an angel appeared to me. And everybody's like, whoa. I get in trouble with stuff like that. People are like, yeah, an angel appeared unto me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. What do you mean? Well, the Bible says Jesus is better, so I don't know why you're in a lower spot that he's got to send an angel to you. <laughs> Getting the look for my wife like, you shouldn't have shared that story. 
I don't like being manipulated. And then when someone comes to me and they're like, an angel appeared to me and you got to do what I tell you to do, I'm kind of like, no, I don't. <laughs> so I'm not the most spiritual when someone tries to manipulate me. We can just scratch that from the tape. <laughs> we actually see it in the Bible. One, one of Job's friends used this tactic to prove that he knew Job was going through all this hardship because of secret sin. He said to me, he said, listen, man, he's like, I was, I was praying to the Lord and thinking about your situation. All of a sudden, all the hair on my arms stood up, and I knew a spirit was walking around me, and, and he spoke to me and told me about your secret sin. And Job's like, man, you had way too many bad burritos. You don't know what you're talking about. No angel came and visited you. It is a tactic that's used at times. But the Bible does say that angels have less authority than the Lord. And this prophet had received a direct command from God to not do what this older prophet says an angel told him he could do. Jesus has a higher authority. Hebrews chapter 1 is all about how Jesus has a higher authority than angels. When the prophet of Judah heard that, that part, he should have concluded one of two things from the older prophet's words. One, fallen angel is trying to deter me, like it really happened, or this guy's lying to me. It was the latter. He lied to him. And now again, here's where the questions kind of go. Why did the older prophet lie about this? You're a prophet of God. The Bible never tells us his motive. Was he excited because he wasn't alone in this mess anymore in Bethel? Was he worried that the other prophet, the prophet from Judah's actions, would get him in trouble if things weren't smoothed over with the king? The Bible gives us no indication why this guy lies. It just says, he says, yeah, God told me that he could do this. And he lied. It could be a thousand different reasons why he lied, but all of them would be bad. Listen, spinning a made-up story about your plans for your dad's birthday because you're taking him to a surprise party is fine. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about lying. But this, this is wicked. Lying is wicked. and Lying is definitely never okay when you say God spoke to you and he did not. It's never okay to use the authority of God's word to deceive people. Never. Whatever this guy's motive, he does deceive the prophet from Judah into disobeying the Lord. Verse 19, so he went back with him, and he did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass that as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back, the older prophet from Bethel. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as you have disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of the which the Lord did say to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Because of that, your carcass shall not come under the tomb of your fathers. More questions. <laughs> Why would God use a man who had lied about God using him? Romans eleven twenty nine, the gifts and the call for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That context of that passage that Paul's teaching on, he's explaining that despite Israel's rejection of their Messiah, despite their opposition to the church, from a national perspective, there were obviously most of the Christians back then were Jewish believers. But despite the fact that Israel as a nation had rejected their Messiah and, and nationally was very much opposed to what Jesus was doing in his church, despite all that, God was not done with Israel. They still had a special place, and God would still use them because God does not remove his calling or his gifting because we fail or we sin. He just doesn't. So we know this guy originally had a call from God. Is he compromised right now? Yes. Is he in sin? Yes, he lied to this guy. But that doesn't change the fact of what God originally called him to be. And here's the truth. 
I, I just wanted you to put this into more human terms because it's easy to read a story like this and go, what is going on? Like these two guys are sitting down eating and here's a man who clearly is not in the center of God's will right now. I mean, the other one's not either now because he, he did disobey. But here's this man who's probably been out of, the, out of God's will for a while. But God had used him in the past and all of a sudden he hears God's voice now again. And he says to him, tell this guy this. He had about 80,000 reasons just to keep his mouth shut. Me? It's my fault he's here. Me? You haven't spoken to me in years. Me? How do I say this to him now? Me? He's going to be upset. I mean, he could have had a ton of excuses to not give the message that God told him to give. I'm blown away that he, he does what God tells him to do here. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we're not so different. No, maybe we haven't been a false prophet or deceived people saying God spoke to us when he didn't, but there's probably been times in our life when we haven't been at our best and God said, I want to use you, and you're like, really? And the Lord's like, yep. And the right answer isn't to go find somebody else. Well, here he is. The word of the Lord comes to him, and he cried unto the man of God. He proclaimed to the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as you have disobeyed, the word there actually means to rebel or defy the mouth of the Lord, and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, your carcass will not come, your, your corpse, your dead body will not come into the tombs of your fathers. We'll get to that in a second, but I think if we put ourselves in the position of the prophet from Judah, I'm sure that if you sat him down at this point in time and said, hey, do you think you're being defiant towards God by being here? Even if you could get him to a place where you go, you know what, I probably shouldn't have come. He would probably never admit to being defiant or rebellious because I'm sure he didn't feel that way at all. I don't think he felt like that. But the real question to ask is, whoever feels defiant when they're disobeying the Lord? This is the subtle lie we need to recognize. All disobedience is defiance. And when I don't feel defiant, it just means my excuses have adequately disarmed the part of me that would recognize the defiance. It doesn't mean it's not there. So he tells him, you've defied the Lord, you've rebelled against the Lord. And he says specifically, this is important, you've rebelled against the mouth of the Lord. God spoke directly to you, sir, but you placed the word of a prophet and an angel above it. Can I tell you this? I don't care what their title is or where they got it from. If they say they had a vision or whatever. If someone ever tells you it's okay to do what God says not to do in his word, you don't have to listen to him. You don't have to listen to him. So here's the judgment, the discipline. Your corpse is not going to be buried in the tomb of your fathers. It was considered a great dishonor to be buried among strangers, far from home, far from your family members. Almost every family had a family tomb back then. This blessing is going to be denied him because of this. Now, Again, the questions. <laughs> Why is God being so harsh with the prophet from Judah and there's no consequences for the dude that lied? Like he's the one who stumbled him. Jesus, didn't you say it'd be better for a man to hang a millstone around his neck and to throw himself in the middle of the ocean than to deceive one of your people? Your little ones? Why judge the man who stood up for the Lord when nothing happens to the man who's already been in Bethel but wasn't doing his job? There's two ways we can approach that. We can go, God, you're not fair. Or we can recognize that the only right explanation is that in the Lord's eyes, what the prophet from Judah did was far more egregious to God. Why might that be the case? Well, the prophet from Judah's decision to disobey God does more than just declare his own disobedience or defiance or rebellion. It absolutely wrecks his testimony before the king and before the people who heard his words to the king. 
Because publicly the king invited him over to his home and publicly he said, the Lord told me not to stop anywhere. Now, if this had happened at just some person's house along the way, maybe news wouldn't have gotten out. Maybe the person wouldn't know who he was, maybe he just didn't tell. But he's staying at a guy who got assigned to the city of Bethel to be their prophet. He's well-known, he's an honored guy in society, Word's gonna, and his sons already know the whole deal. Word's going to get out that he came back to eat there. His actions are going to communicate a very wrong idea. And the wrong idea is this, that God does not mean what he says. That God does not take his word seriously. And if God didn't mean what he said to this prophet, then maybe God didn't mean what he said about Israel's idolatry. It's easy to read this and to go, man, God, this is really harsh. And it's not going to get better because he's going to get eaten by a lion in a second. Well, not eaten, killed. But when we read the Bible, I was telling, we had a leadership meeting today, and I was explaining to him, I said, you know, most of the time we're reading the Bible, God, like, is really gentle with us when we disobey. And he's very patient. But we do have a few instances in Scripture where God is just, boom. And almost all of those occasions are when his leaders misrepresent him. Like Moses is the best example of that. You look at Israel all throughout the 40 years they wandered in the wilderness, and like the only dude beside Joshua and Caleb that really trusted the Lord was Moses. And Moses, because of one failure to represent God correctly, he doesn't get to go into the promised land. And you feel for him because the whole time he's like, Lord, can we talk about this again? The Lord's like, nope, we're not talking about this anymore. Lord, can we? No, I don't want to talk about it with you anymore. Like God, the judgment was swift and it was heavy, the discipline. The consequences were heavy for Moses. Some of God's most serious judgments have come when his leaders misrepresent him. And this was a big one because God was trying to communicate a very clear message to the nation who had just started in this very wrong direction, a direction that is going to basically keep them out of fellowship with God for the enti- almost the entirety of their existence. And this prophet, all he do is follow the instructions and not mess it up, but he does. And he gives the people the impression that God doesn't mean what he says and God doesn't take his word seriously. Now, again, this is a weird story. One might think when this prophet, older prophet, gives him this word from the Lord, that this would kind of wake the prophet from Judah up going, what am I doing here? Get, help me get my stuff and get out of here. But his response to God's di- discipline is kind of lackluster. Look at what verse 23 says. It says, and it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he sat before him. The older prophet is like, you need to go. He, he t- he's, you know, the guy delivers the word. You know, I almost kind of, he's munching on some bread and you got some pita with some, some hummus in there and he's eating. And the guy's like, thus saith the Lord. And he's like, all right, pass the peas. He just finishes his meal. I had a friend of mine who, he, um, he struggled with homosexuality throughout his high school life. And uh, he, remember he told me a story once. He was in a, a bookstore, and the Lord told me, he said, don't go in there. Because there's a lot of temptation in those places at times. And he said, don't go in there. But he went in there. And <laughs> you'd never expect. But some guy came in there and started hitting on him. And his only answer was to literally just run out of the bookstore. Like when we see Joseph... And Potiphar's wife is doing all that nonsense. He just runs. Paul told Timothy, flee sexual sin. There are situations where you just need to get out, no matter what the cost is. Not finish your dinner. (laughs) I don't know why he didn't leave immediately after hearing God's message. And I don't know why, like, the, the older prophet who deceived him is the one trying to get him to do what God said now. Like, you need to go. 
When we look at this story, I think it confuses us because we see two people start off in a very different place. And what's easy to not recognize is that they switch places by the end. It almost just seems like, well, two guys are in a bad spot. But that's not the case. We'll get to that in a second. I think there's a truth here that we must always be on guard about not taking God's Word seriously, no matter how close you are to the Lord or how much He's used you. Because no matter how well that's gone in your life, there is always a danger that exists that I will slack off in that area. Always. It's why when we read later on about some of the good kings of Judah, we will see that they have awful endings to their life because they did slack in this area. Well, like I said, the guy who is motivating him to go, get his donkey saddle and get him out, it's the guy who lied to him. Which again shows me that the guy who originally hadn't been taking God's word seriously now is the only one taking it seriously. Which may be why God's judgment falls so swiftly on the prophet from Judah. Look at verse 24. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way, and the donkey stood by it, the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by, and they saw the carcass cast in the way, and the lion standing by the carcass, and they came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that had brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, It is the man of God, who is disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him unto the lion, which has torn him and slain him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke unto him." So this guy goes out, he gets on his donkey, and a lion meets him on the road, kills him, but doesn't eat him. He, the word cast there means to dispose of the body. After the lion kills him, he just chucks the body into the middle of the road, and then the lion comes up, and he's just like next to the corpse, and the donkey's sitting right next to the corpse too. And they're just like, what's up? So, listen, I, I tried to find as much information about this as possible so I, I wouldn't be incorrect, but from all the studying I did, lions do not coexist in the same place with other creatures. They might somehow exist in spatially distant in the same habitat, but they don't exist in the same space just chilling with any other creatures. Certainly not a domesticated animal that is an easy meal. So if you're traveling, you know, coming home from work that day, you know, got your cart, and you see a lion and a donkey, and they're like, evening, <laughs> sitting next to a corpse, that's a sign of something supernatural is going on. And when a miracle like that occurs, it's going to draw attention. And so people start talking about it. And when the old prophet hears about it, he knows exactly what's going on. And the amount of times he mentions the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. Again, the other guy's dead now, but we've got one guy who's actually finally taken God's word seriously. They're, they're changing positions. Verse 27, and he spoke to his son saying, saddle me the donkey. And so they saddled him. And he went and he found his carcass cast in the way. And the donkey, the lion standing by the carcass, and the lion had not eaten the carcass nor killed the donkey. Listen, lions do regard human beings as prey, and they will eat a person if they kill them. They won't leave it there. So again, this is clearly a miracle, which shows to us that God is trying to make a point that will get out there and will countermand the prophet's failure. This is no chance occurrence. This isn't an episode of when wild animals attack and get weird. This is God's judgment on a man who rebelled against his word, and God does it because he's fixing this man's ruined testimony. Jeroboam, I don't change my mind about my word. Look at what happened to this guy who thought that. People of Israel, I mean exactly what I say. This prophet's message stands even though he himself didn't listen to it. And yet, because God is interested in individuals and not just nations, I also think it has the side effect of convicting this individual and bringing him out of his compromise. Verse 29, and the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God 
and laid it upon the donkey and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. Not just countrymen. That's not what the word here means. Brother does not mean my countryman. It means my associate, my partner. I may not be correct, but I think the older prophet sees in this burial that it should be his burial. I think he sees, I've been doing what you did for years, but now you're dead, and I'm still here. Which brings up a really, really good question. How is a person supposed to react when they know they've compromised, or they've horribly disobeyed, or lied, or misrepresented God? And they deserve his judgment for it, but God hasn't done so. Is life over at that point? Is God's plan for that life erased? What about when someone else dies or they experience a horrifying, life-altering situation and you're partially to blame? Are you supposed to punish yourself forever? Can you never be redeemed? Redemption is an interesting topic in our culture today. Because if you talk to most people, they will tell you that there are certain things that someone can do that they can never be redeemed. I don't know which person you identify more with tonight, but the truth is if, if you're still breathing, then God wants to turn you back to Him. He wants you to come back to Him wants you to walk with him with the breath that you have left. And I think that's what this old prophet does. Verse 31, and it came to pass after he'd buried him that he spoke to his son saying, when I am dead, then bury me in the tomb wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. Why? Because of the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria, because it shall surely come to pass. He wasn't even there to see the prophet say it. He wasn't there to hear the words. His sons came back and told him. And I think after all this nonsense, when he sees this, he says, don't let anybody bury me up by that abomination. I don't want my bones to be burned on that altar with all the other people who went along with this put my bones by this guy's bones because I don't stand with this anymore. If you go to Israel today, there are Jewish, Christian, and Muslim burial sites all around the Mount of Olives. And that's because all three of those groups, they want their dead to be as close to the Messiah as possible when he returns there to raise the dead. The most honored burial place for this old prophet would be near the worship center in Bethel. He says, I don't want that. I don't think he does it because of regret over his actions or even because of sympathy for the prophet of Judah. Put my bones near his bones. I think his words are a statement that affirm the message of the prophet from Judah because he's saying, sons, God is going to judge this place if we don't repent. And I know that because God takes his word seriously. If he said it, it will happen. So put my bones here. We're out of time, but do a study of where people want to be buried in the Bible, and it's always significant, always. It's never emotional. It's almost always an act of faith. And that's why I started off tonight by reading from the parable of the prodigal son. There are two sons in that story. One starts off obedient but becomes bitter and estranged from his father later on. One starts off defiant, but later repents and is reunited with his father. If you identify with the prophet of Judah tonight, then get up from out under that tree. Don't start compromising now. Don't let your guard down. Hold fast, stay the course, cling to God's word. If you identify with the older prophet, then wake up before you end up hurting someone close to you. You're not stuck where you are. You don't have to stay compromised. The Lord isn't done with you. Run back to his word.
And if you've already caused hurt to those close to you or you've had a massive failure in your life, well, God still has a plan for you. And you aren't fulfilling it by punishing yourself for the rest of your days. Start taking God's word serious again. Return to your first love. He's waiting with open arms. Amen? Well, the entire point of this story is, this message is to show that while God takes his word seriously, Jeroboam didn't learn that lesson. So verse 33 and 34. And this thing, in other words, the news about the prophet from Judah's death and the news of the miracle with the lion and the donkey, even though Jeroboam hears about all this, he refuses to repent. He did not return from his evil path, but he made again, or he kept on ordaining these priests from non-Levite. They were non-Levites, just anybody. Anybody who wanted to be, it says. It says, whosoever wanted to, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And so this thing became sin unto the family of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. God had told Jeroboam, he said, I make you a promise. If you'll just walk with me, worship me, I'll make your line a dynasty in Israel. But now we see at the end of the chapter, God is actively seeking to wipe his line off the planet. Those are radically different endings to a person's story, right? But I think the message is God's saying, that's how seriously I take my word. That's how seriously I take my word. So what is God like? Character, he keeps his promises. Even the ones that promise judgment, he takes his word seriously. The northern kingdom did not experience God's judgment later on because God broke his promise. It happened because Jeroboam broke his promise. And because when God sent his word to expose his failure, he didn't take it seriously. So let's not be like Jeroboam. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you that even when we sometimes may read about people in the Bible who whew, make us think about ourselves or maybe our own past or our own failures or maybe our own struggles right now, maybe our own, you know, our own slippery backsliding. Lord, we're so grateful that you, you bring people sometimes 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years away and you bring it right home to us. Thank you for weird stories like this because, Lord, the, the truth is we're no less weird. <laughs> we do crazy things sometimes. We act in strange ways sometimes. We make really dumb decisions. But, Lord, you're just, you're always drawing us back to yourself. So, Lord, here we are, whatever, whatever it is, and you know every heart. When Maybe there's some who are saying, Lord, forgive me for this. I come back. Maybe there's some who are returning their first love, and maybe there's just some who are going, Lord, I, I, I realize maybe where I've slacked off about taking your word seriously. Whatever it might be, Lord, you know every heart. Or as, some, as someone tonight or all of us tonight you know, are, are making some fresh commitment to you or we're talking to you about something we want to change, I pray you'd fill us with your spirit so we can live it out. Let me ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.